500 vehicles to sell, 500 ways to save. One month only at Build Penny Toyota during Mega Memorial Month. Now through May 31st. That means mega deals on your favorite Toyota models from Alabama's number one volume Toyota dealer. And don't forget, every new vehicle comes with our 10-year unlimited warranty. Plus, enjoy the rest of our awesome Penny perks. Visit BuildPennyToyota.com during Mega Memorial Month. Number one based on 2018 total new Toyota retail sales in Alabama for Southeast Toyota distributors. Warranty valid through 10th year of ownership on new vehicles only. See dealer for details. Shut up and sit down. bitches I slept most of the day this is important news because I don't sleep much when I'm having PMS and we'll leave it at that I uh, so I've slept like maybe 15 hours the whole week until today and I slept like eight hours today so I feel like a thousand times better <laughs> being a girl sometimes it sucks just FYI it sucks I uh, didn't get to read Sentinels of Atlantis. I was going to to prep myself to um, to work on it, but I didn't get a chance to, so uh, you'll have to bear with me. Here's the thing about writing in so many different AUs in the same fandom. A lot of times details kind of blend together, and you will think something happened in one AU and it happened in the other. That's a big problem in um, what might have been because I was writing Sentinels of Atlantis at the same time and I was doing some editing on the what might have been file for my ebook, which I am going to put out eventually. It's just a huge, huge story. I mean, it's, it's, it's ginormous. Um, the final product on what might have been is actually, hold on a minute, I'll tell you, because uh, I, I had the final open today. The final file <coughs> is 258,000 words, and the PDF version of the ebook is going to be 976 pages. And so I was reading um, what might have been earlier in the week King, with, the, um, with, the, with the story and checking it out, and I actually found a couple of, of spots where I referenced events that happened in Sentinels of Atlantis. It's little stuff that you wouldn't – I don't think anybody else would even notice, but I did. And so I was like, oh, God, what did I do? And so, so that's what happens when you um, write in a whole bunch of different AUs at the same time. So, you know, don't be surprised if one day you open up a Sentinels of Atlantis and John has Rodney tied to a wall because it might happen if it gets past the beta. You know, <laughs> so. Because that would be so terrible because the John in Sentinels of Atlantis would never in a million years spank McKay. <laughs> it would just not cross his mind at all. Um, my office is a little hot, so I'm going to turn my fan on. If you can hear it on the podcast, would you um, let me know in the chat room and I'll turn it off. Um, anyways, because sometimes fans will hit the mic 
and it will be really annoying if you guys had to listen to that for two hours. Okay, so I was, uh, anyway, so I was reading what might have been earlier in the week, and I want to tell you this part just a little bit because um, I made myself cry. There is a scene that's going to take place at the very end of Ring of Fire, and um, I wrote it, and I had this inspirational moment a couple of years ago, and I wrote what amounts to the fifth-to-last scene in Ring of Fire, and it is very emotional, and John thinks that Rodney and Sebastian both are dead, and he cries, and I cried too, and it was it was horrible, and it was it was such a terrible sobbing cry that I'm actually not sure I'll even be able to put it in the final version of this because even though I believe in a happy ending, you guys know that, right? Um, it it was it was terrible. <laughs> I, was, I, I made myself a nervous wreck. <laughs> Raddick cried, I cried. <laughs> People got fired. It was it was it was it's one of those scenes that that when you have it in your head and um you put it down on paper, um, it's extremely powerful. But it's even more powerful because the version in your head was such an emotional place to go. And so that when you get it down on paper, all that emotion you had when you wrote it comes back to you every single time you read it. And there have been moments in what might have been where I have made myself almost sick to my stomach getting upset. You know? <laughs> so, and I don't know I just I don't know if I'll be able to put it in the final draft because it was very upsetting and even though I believe in a happy ending and I know where it's going to go and it's going to be fine, I still cried like a baby. Anyways, so that's enough about that. <clears throat> Sentinels of Atlantis. For those of you who listen to my podcast regularly, you will remember that I've talked for several minutes through most of my podcasts about Sentinels of Atlantis because it's a big project for me and it's one that I'm that I'm very fond of. And I have said before, and I'll say again for those of you who don't listen regularly and who are just tuning in for this particular one because it's your favorite, um, that Sentinels of Atlantis was inspired by Lady Holder's unlikely and unwilling um, story where John is a sentinel and him and Rodney meet in Antarctica. And one of the reasons is because when I first started reading um, Stargate, I was coming out of the Sentinel fandom. Um, they were kind of merged together for me when I entered fandom. Because, I, you know, because when you enter fandom as a whole, there are certain things you get exposed to, um, especially as a Flash reader. And I entered Star, Stargate fandom as a Ronan Keller shipper. Yeah, sorry. Uh and I quickly moved into McKay Shepard. I mean, like, it was pretty, very organic and very quick. And <clears throat> Barbara in the chat room is asking me if I remember when Romancing the Stone, when the author cries through her scenes. As a matter of fact, yes, and I have done that. I have totally done that. And if you're in the chat room, Lady Holder has posted a link to The Unlikely and The Unwilling. And it, um, it was... It was a fascinating concept for me when I read it. I was like, oh. It was like a light bulb went off in my head. It was like, boom. It, you know, it was a sonic 
boom of, of plot bunnies was, was what that was. And because I had read several stories where Rodney was the sentinel, and I was like, that just doesn't work for me. I mean, the stories were great. Don't get me wrong. Um, they were fantastic stories. But for me, it didn't work for me. And it's not because I don't think Rodney could be a sentinel. It's because I don't think John could be a guide. I really don't. He's got like a big blob of Teflon where his heart is. I mean, in canon. In canon, he's got he's got a Teflon-covered heart, okay? So and Rodney is very emotional in canon. He's not particularly empathetic, but he's very emotional and available. And there, there's a vulnerability in, in Rodney that you never see in John. Even when John is furious, he... He never has that moment where he opens up and looks vulnerable. And I have a hard time picturing him opening him up, himself up emotionally and mentally to a sentinel as far as, like, my, my head cannon goes and how that works. And so I had read those, those stories where John was the guide, and I just I, I enjoyed them. Really? I especially enjoy that one where John smells like strawberries and Rodney has no idea that John's a god and John doesn't know either, but he keeps hunting John down because he smells like strawberries and come to find out John's a god. Um, and it was just the way his skin smelled. It was like a bonding um, motivator. Of course, if Azur was on a sentinel and John smelled like strawberries, it would be like a death threat. <laughs> And I forget what it's called, but if someone in the chat room would say, I would be happy to repeat it, because it's a great story. Um, <clears throat> Azor is allergic to strawberries. So anyways, um, if somebody will find it, they'll put a link in the chat room, and I will um, tell you the author and name if someone finds it for me during the course of the show. I should have looked it up earlier, because I, I, I knew I was going to mention it. But <clears throat> It's a great it's a great story, and it was actually my introduction to the idea of a crossover between the Sentinel and Stargate. But I really wanted John to be the Sentinel, and I couldn't find it anywhere. And then one day I did, and I was like, oh, who is this? And I didn't even know Lady Holder at the time. She was um, not somebody I'd had really inter- any interaction with um, when I first had that idea. And I was like... Whoa! Wow! Let, let's let, let's take a good deep look at this. And eventually, Lady Holder would end up um, being uh, my critique partner from my original The Sentinel story, um, The Awakening. Um, but so it's kind of hard to tell to remember when all that came into being and and, and how it worked out. Um, and I don't know. And I didn't tell her for a long time <laughs> that, that her story was the inspiration for Sentinels of Atlantis because sometimes when you when you take somebody else's idea and you play with it, um, I've I've had authors get upset with me because they think that I was trying to do their idea better or I had a problem with their idea. And the story is called Like Strawberries in Summer by Darkmore. I actually recommend Darkmore out. The Wazoo. Darkmoor is amazing. It's an amazing SGA writer. Um, I I love his or her work. Um, her, probably. Well, nine times out of ten, it's a her. But if it's not in, in, in Darkmoor, if you're listening and, and you're a boy, I apologize if you need an apology for being referred to as a girl. 
because I don't understand that particularly because I'm a girl and girls are awesome. But anyways, that was a fucking awesome story, Darkmoor, and all your work is awesome. But um, <clears throat> So I was actually a little leery of telling Lady Holder that her work had inspired my own. So I didn't want her to get the idea that I was trying to improve her work or, you know, just I didn't want to hurt her feelings. <clears throat> Which is unusual for me, I have to say, because normally I don't mind hurting somebody's feelings because I'm a bitch. In case that big picture above my live journal didn't clue you in. Anyways, <clears throat> so when I first wrote The Gathering, I wrote it all down and I thought, oh, well, this is fantastic. And I kept writing. And I wrote 20 episodes back to back and showed no one, which is unfortunate. Because if I had showed Lady Holder when my fucking hard drive failed, she would have been able to send my stuff back to me. (laughs) But she didn't. Because I didn't give it to her. Because I was being a stingy hoarder. I don't know. And I had it backed up anywhere, and it was terrible. So I only had like five or six episodes actually posted at that time, maybe seven. I don't know, somewhere in that area. So I had to rewrite the entire, basically the last half of season one. And it is absolutely nothing like what I wrote the first time. Because sometimes when you have a catastrophic writing loss like that, it is impossible to, to duplicate. Because it it hurts to try to do it, and it's really uncomfortable, and you get upset and distressed, and then you lose all interest in in writing it. Um, So, yeah. Um, It was not, you know, actually, um, I'm on the fence whether or not the first version of season one was better or or worse than than, than what you eventually got. It was different. And um, sometimes, like, when you come back to a project, you think, oh, I wouldn't do that there. I, I would do this instead. When I was reading what might have been earlier in the week, I, I had several moments during that where I thought, oh, God, that was badly done. I, I wish I'd done that differently. That's a little awkward. And you know, just stuff like that. You know, like I would have, you know, in retrospect, I would have introduced Sebastian in an entirely different way if I had to do it over it again. Because sometimes when you – come back to it you think oh well this would have been better if i had done it this way and that's the one of the problems with writing fan fiction the way that i do because i don't do a, a draft process there's very often most of my projects have a first draft and then they go into beta and then they're published whereas if i'm doing something for something different in an original project there are several draft stages lantian legacy went through several draft stages which is why it's a vastly different story than what i originally put out there um so sentinels of atlantis basically did go through a draft phase because we got an entirely different story out of it after i finished what i was doing there and i have lost my studio window okay <coughs> so anyways the first, the first season of Sentinels of Atlantis is about world building. The entire season, every episode, builds on the world that was introduced in The Gathering. So by the time you get to the last episode of season one, which is called The Search, you have been introduced to all the basic concepts of the world. And everything that's going to happen has been foreshadowed in season one. 
even if it's like one sentence in episode four, that epi- that that sentence in episode four is a vision is is eventually going to have bear fruit later in the series. There are lots of moments in Sentinels of Atlantis where they're small. They are tiny moments, and then they ripple. Like one of the biggest tiny moment is when the ancient ascended guide tells them that they're limiting their focus, that there are no limits in the psionic plane, only the limits that they give themselves. And this goes back to a moment that happened in the gathering when John and Rodney are separated by a, by a planet. Shortly after they bond, Rodney leaves the planet for an emergency situation. And the moment the wormhole disengages, Rodney disengages from his sentinel. It's an instinctual response on his part. And it sends John into a, uh, back on, um, and, and, and he loses control of, of his gifts. So what happens is that because Rodney assumes being separated on different planets will cut off his ability to interact with his sentinel, when the gate disengages, Rodney disengaged too. And that is the only reason that John had the experience that he had. Had Rodney not been aware or not noticed that the gate closed, he would not have lost his connection to his sentinel because there are no limits on the psionic plane. And again, that moment comes up again when John is sitting in the control chair and his father is sitting in the control chair in um, Antarctica and they connect. Because Patrick isn't a guide yet, he's, but he's about to be. He's being, um, the ancient technology is switching him on. And John reaches out for his father and it wasn't the technology that allowed John to do it. It was the psionic. And what happens is, is because Patrick wasn't online, the chair facilitated his mental connection to John. And that's a, that's a small moment. But it has big implications. Because it tells you that the psionic plane isn't little bubbles that are separate from each other. It is a big flowing body of influence throughout the universe. That It is not separate. Like there isn't a psionic plane that is in Pegasus and then a separate psionic plane that's in uh, the Milky Way. They are not separate. They're all connected together. That the psionic plane is literally the stuff of stars and it connects the entire universe that they're in. Because when the the race have believed themselves safe from guides, and what I established early on was that the reason they destroyed Satita, um, or ever how you say that, um, was because the guides were a threat. They didn't even understand what kind of threat they were. And what I did was with, with Sentinels of Atlantis, and um, was I created a mythology around ascension. And ascension is actually a a act of joining your soul with the psionic plane. 
So the plane of ascension is actually the psionic plane, which is why sentinels and guides ascend very easily. And that's why the ancients interbred themselves with the, with the Satedans, which is the birth place of the sentinels and guides in this universe. Every sentinel and guide in the Milky Way galaxy can trace their genetics back to Satita. That's, that's where they all come from. And that's also important. That's also a, a, a tiny but important moment when they realize that their assumptions about sentinels and guides being genetically manipulated was deeper. That the that the ancients actually kind of, in a rather mercenary way, culled sentinels and guides from Satita for their own purposes and purposely bred with them to create weapons. And that's what guides are. They're weapons. And it's important keep that in mind because closed the last um, episode of season one the um, ancient outpost in the Ross Sea <clears throat> ends up uh, waking up all the sentinels on earth that were or not dormant latent that's a big important difference uh, because there were a whole bunch of guides but there weren't a lot of matching sentinels when when you first open up sentinels of atlantis what you know is that sentinels are rare and guides are abundant and then by the end of it there's an equality taking place across the world over because sentinels are waking up it is a sentinel's purpose to protect the guide that's every instinct they have is supposed to be geared toward protecting the guide but on earth because there were so few sentinels and so many guides it's been reversed been completely reversed and so when when they meet Taylor and Ronan it's an entirely different situation than what they're used to. Ronan is extremely militant about his guide. And yes, John is too, but it's different. Because Ronan has instinctual drives in place that none of the other sentinels do. He's, they're urban. They're, they are urban sentinels, whereas he is a primitive sentinel. And that will come into play in season two when they are introduced to people off from from Earth, on Earth, when they go to Earth. <clears throat> because Ronan wants to reconnect with his people, and he feels like the best way that he can do that is to go to Earth, because that's where the descendants of his people are now. That Earth is going to become Ronan's home in a way, because destroyed the home he had in Pegasus. And they're going to realize a little, a lot, that, Ronan's temperament on Atlantis was controlled because there weren't a lot of perceived threats. But Taylor's a very attractive guide, both physically and mentally, and she's got a whole lot going on for her. So when they come to Earth, there are going to be some sentinels 
are that find her very fascinating, and that will be difficult for for him to conceptualize and, and deal with because he's not used to having to um, temper his responses to threats because there have been no threats on Atlantis that he wasn't allowed to deal with the way he wanted to because there were no threats, really. Um, and anybody off Atlantis that got in his way or messed with his guy died, period. But he hasn't had to fight that battle on Atlantis because the people who are on Atlantis are very... interested in um, keeping their their sentinels happy because what they realized upon landing on Atlantis that their sentinels <laughs> are basically the only thing standing between them and a really terrible death at the hands of the race. <laughs> you know, so there's there's a respect there that's gonna be kinda of lost when they get to Earth a little bit and there's gonna be some adjustments to be made. But the big part of the first of the first season of Sentinels of Atlantis, and I have a little, sorry, fucking allergies. I hate spring. Anyways, <coughs> when they every moment in Sentinels of Atlantis in season one is, is is a bit of world building when it comes to their guides and the uh, well. It, Marcus is offering me Benadryl via the chat. If I actually took a Benadryl five minutes from now, I would be unconscious because that stuff knocks me out. It is terrible. Anyways, so back to world building in Sentinels of Atlantis. And what happens is um, I have this thing about reuniting John and his father, and it's because they're estranged in canon and that 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 connection never happens because Patrick Shepard dies in, in canon. So... There, there's never that moment when John reconnects with his father, and this is probably a personal quirk of mine since my father, since I actually haven't seen the man who donated the sperm from my conception since I was seven or eight years old. So I have a, a, a kink about reunions. I don't know. <laughs> I can't explain it. That probably doesn't sound good. That, that probably did not sound good. Let it go. I'm, I'm letting it go. That was terrible. So we're going to not talk about that anymore. Um, but <laughs> sorry, I got myself tickled. Anyways, I, what I enjoyed most about Sentinels of Atlantis was bringing in characters from um, other stories that I'm writing and uh, pushing them into uh, Sentinels of Atlantis in, in new and exciting ways. And my favorite pairing in Sentinels of Atlantis would be Chase Harris and Matthew Shepard. And speaking of Chase Harris, when I was reading what might have been, I found Chase Harris in what might have been. And I was like, Chase, what are you doing here? <laughs> it was like totally unexpected. He just has this one little scene where him and his team have have gone to a planet and... <laughs> They're all covered in mud when they come back, and John and Rodney have just gotten out of the shower, the base showers. And um, and Chase was joking about trying to get two members of his team that were female to, to, to mud wrestle. And there he is, biggest day, and I'm like, oh my god, really? Because I did, because for some reason in my mind, Chase Harris was a character I create, I created for ties that bind, and that might have been, um, his original. And then he just kind of ended up, because I was finishing up what might have been while I was reading. 
while I was still writing on what uh, ties that bind. So it could be that he kind of just snuck in there because he was already created for ties that bind, and I, I, I needed a name, and, and he worked out. But it was like totally surprise chase. I, I, I had forgotten that he was in there. And, yes, it was Planet Mudball. And um, it was just like, boom, there's Chase Harris. And it, it was really fun. Um, Chris King is in the chat room with her itty-bitty tiny font. Oh, Chris, click on the T and, and adjust that stuff so it's a little bit bigger. Okay. So anyway, Chase and um, Matthew Shepard in um, Los of Atlantis is actually one of my favorite couples because they have um, – Chase comes into this relationship with all this misplaced grief and a little bit of guilt, and he's – maybe misplaced guilt and a little grief. <laughs> Either way, he's coming out of a situation where his <clears throat> went his his for his his first guy died in battle in, in combat, and he's in a situation where he desperately wants a guide, but he also desperately wants Matthew Shepard, and. They don't know at that point when they meet that if Matthew that, that if Matthew's ever going to come online, and so there's this there's this uh, oh you know sex is easy for them at this point, but they also have to come to the idea that maybe Matt won't come online, and then if, and if that happens, and Chase meets a guy that he can bond with, what will happen, the relationships that, that, that they really desperately both want. And so it's really, it, it's, it's interesting to play with that dynamic. And even knowing that I do believe in happily ever after, and of course, of course Chase is going to get his man, it, it's just, it's really interesting to play with it, you know, and to see. And you see this moment where um, Chase has, has lost his temper with somebody at the center, and Matt comes to get him because he's he's off base without permission, and it's you know Chase is just Chase had a very instinctual I'm gonna kick your ass moment, and Matt comes along to get him, and you can see um, that there's already a little bond flowing between them, and and Blair points it out you know that you've almost put a a sentinel in a feral drive over someone who's probably going to be his guide. And then they, then they already have the beginnings of a latent bond, even though Matthew Shepard isn't online. <coughs> and it comes back in, and that's a little moment that I put in there to talk about what hap- well, about their natural state and what should be happening between sentinels and guides. Because in their history, in their ancient history, when sentinels and guides came together, not only were they being influenced by the psionic plane and the abundance of psionic crystal on Satita, they were also being stimulated by finding their partner. And it's like a soulmate match. Their 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 spirits and their and, and everything is supposed to be perfect for each other. And what's happened because the ancients fucked with them so much, put in activation genes into the guy the guide lineage on Earth. They did that because they wanted weapons, but they didn't want sentinels. They couldn't control the, the birth of sentinels, but they activated the guides with gene therapy 
because they wanted guides to be weapons. And sentinels got in the way of that. You have to keep in mind that a sentinel is the biggest defense a guide has. And it's more than just mental protection. It's physical protection. It's protection from society so that someone can't misuse a guide. Because the, the last thing you want to do is abuse a guide that's bonded because their sentinel will kill you. And the best way to control guides and to use guides as weapons is to have guides but to not have sentinels. So while they could not control the birth of sentinels on Earth once it started happening, they could control what else happened. They, acted, they put genes into the gene pool to activate guides, which is why there are four times as many guides on Earth as there are sentinels when the story opens. Because the ancients always believed that the race would come that they would find them. So in their fear, not only were they running and trying to ascend, they were also building themselves an army of guides on earth. And then because of the Ga'ul, that army spread throughout the entire galaxy um, of the Milky Way. And you'll find pockets of sentinels and guides on different planets around the Milky Way galaxy that you won't find in Pegasus because the people on Satita kept their guides and sentinels at home until the ancients came along and, 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 and fucked with that. So there are all these little moments in the first season of Sentinels of Atlantis that when you put them all together, you, you have this insidious and terrible plot by the ancients to create an army of guides, but they didn't bother to understand the, the needs of a guide, the, the biology um, and the emotional and the empathetic um, needs of a guide. All they wanted was weapons. And the end result was is that they got very fragile, unpredictable weapons. Which is why eventually they retreated to Earth because the guides they had on Atlantis weren't capable of doing what Rodney did. And we see what Rodney does in episode, hold on, I have my storyboard open. <clears throat> it takes place in episode five. It's called The Enemy. Rodney and John go off off base, and they're on another planet with Taylor and Ronan <coughs> to do some trading. And there's a moment where... Rodney is attacked by a wraith, and in his desperation not to be fed on, he used his gifts as a guide to kill the wraith. And it's in a very cold-blooded manner, which is in a direct kind of uh, contradiction to what a guide is, but... As much as the sentinel protects the guide, the guide protects the sentinel. And, the, and since the race is such a huge threat to everybody, and especially to his sentinel, when <clears throat> they have that race behind the shield and Rodney is trying to figure out what they can do with him because they can't keep him. 
because he's an empathetic threat to, to everybody on the city. And they can't let him go because he's got intel on them that they don't want anybody to have. So, so Rodney kills him. And this is, from a technical point of view, a war crime. He has killed a subdued enemy. Boom. It's done. And so when they get back to Atlantis, there's a... Uh, the reaction kind of weaves through the city. You know, there are people who are like, whoa, 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 McKay did what? <laughs> and Elizabeth is like, what? McKay did what? <laughs> what? You know, and so it, it kind of spreads throughout the city, and they come to realize that the guides are just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, than the sentinels ever were and ever will be. There's something going on in the chat room that's, um, oh, she's copying it. But I don't know what this question is. Hold on. Um, anyways, uh, <clears throat> so they bring the race back to Atlantis, and there's an autopsy, which is kind of fun for me to write. It, it was fun for me to write because Jennifer is so geared up and excited. She doesn't even care how disgusting it is. And her sentinel's like, oh, my God, I can't believe you're my God. She, here, there goes his delicate, pretty doctor, who who he adores, um, elbow deep in a race carcass, and she couldn't be more excited. <laughs> and, it's, and it's really, you know, it's it was a fun scene to write. You know, it, it was very fun. Fun, um, but uh, Lady Holder just posted a. A, a part of the scene where, where this happens in the chat room. And what I found really uh, compelling to write was Taylor, because Taylor has been exposed to the race her whole life. And she's come to realize in, in, in that moment that she has the ability to kill race. And she doesn't have to have a gun or, an, or a knife. And it is like an epiphany for her. And at that point, when Taylor and Ronan go back, I think this is before, yeah, this is this is before they're attacked on, on, on um, this is like directly before they're called on her home world. She is desperate to be taught this. It becomes her number one thing. Teach me how to turn off the race. It's like boom, enter. And she has, and it's a huge moment for Taylor. And it's also a huge moment for the entire story. Because up until this point, when Rodney killed the race, the Sentinel was the threat in their relationship. Don't touch guides, it'll piss their sentinel off. Be careful with the guides, it'll piss their sentinel off. <laughs> Don't look too close. 
at a, at a guide, it'll piss their sentinel off. And you don't want their sentinel pissed off because they'll go feral and kill you all <laughs> and everything you love. And here is Rodney, and he's killed a race with his brain. And Taylor, supposed to be all serene and, and, and you know, calm and is like, hell yeah, teach me how to do that. <laughs> I want to know. And then there's like this switch that gets flipped in her, in Rodney, and, and all the guys that he will come into contact thereafter, where they go from shield and protect my sentinel to shield and protect my tribe, just like a sentinel. Because the sentinel and the guide in SOA are <clears throat> two sides of the same coin. So the question becomes, if a sentinel can go feral, can a guide? And that's a question that will get answered in season two. <laughs> And it will be big and awesome and bad, and it will be fantastic, and I can't wait to ride it. I'm super excited about riding it. Now is a good time to um, – I want to share with you the list of titles for Season 2. And I had them all plotted out, and the first one is called The Pride. And this has got <coughs> – and it will be as big as The Gathering, probably around 30K. Because because it's, um, because it's opening up the season, and then the episodes after after it will run five to ten k, just like season um, one happened. Um, so basically, think of uh, episode twenty one, which is the first episode of season two, as a two parter, like like if it was actually a TV series. So what happens is is they receive the message from Earth, and Elizabeth translates, and the Asgard come to Earth to deal with Jack, who's now a sentinel, and that was really unexpected on their parts. And he has to deal with the pride that's developing in Colorado Springs around him against his will. So the second one is called The Sacrifice. And this is the episode where I answer the question as to whether or not a guy can go feral. And um, it'll be great. I'm super excited to write it. I had a, I didn't know which guy I wanted to do it with it for a while. I was really, I was really on the fence about which guy I should do it with because a part of me wanted to do it with Graham because he's so laid back and sweet and sexy in, in season one and just go and just I just wanted to go boom on him. But then I thought, you know what? No, that's not who really deserves a moment. And it probably comes into play that during the week that I was plotting that particular episode, I watched the first two seasons of Farscape. And I'm going to leave it at that. And if you get it, fantastic. If you don't, you'll just have to wait. Um, episode three of season two is called The Return. And um, Miko will be coming back to uh, Earth. And it's going to be explosive. I'm, I'm terribly excited. <clears throat> Four is The Lifeline. And it will be a uh, episode of travel. Carter is going to leave Earth, and she's going to be a badass. It's going to be fantastic. Okay, uh, episode five is going to be the siege, and that's going to play back into the, the uh, canon events. <clears throat> and the canon events were the siege, 
raised her at the door. They don't have a lot of power. Um, but the, there are some big differences. The Sentinels have sent the civilians off-world. So when the Wraith arrive, the only people on the city are going to be Sentinels and guides. And it's going to be awesome. I can't wait to ride it. Episode 26 is called The Victors. Um, that should be obvious. It's following the siege. And then we're going to have episode 27 called The Prophet. And um, I'm not telling you anything about it, but it's going to be fantastic. Um, angels might be involved. It will be great. Episode 28 will be The Intruder. There's actually an episode called The Intruder in the original um, Sentinel, um, in, the, in the original Atlantis, but it doesn't bear any. The resemblance is, is, is very small. Episode 29 is called The Fall. <clears throat> it's um, kind of... Episode 29, because it's like almost basically in the middle of my season, it's a it's a breather. You're going to have a a nice moment of um, awe, isn't that sweet? And um, Andy's going to meet his guide, and so and that's what the fall is about. Um, the fall is a play on the idea of a fallen angel, and you know basically in a a fallen ascended person. And right now his guide's ascended, but Sort of. He's in a state of transition. And so he's going to come back to Earth for, um, for his Sentinel, and it's going to be terribly sweet and, um, and, and nice, and I'm really looking forward to writing that too because it's going to be a breather for me as well because there's going to be a lot of intensity. Okay, and the next episode is called The Host, and I think that um, you shouldn't have any, doubt, any doubts whatsoever what that's about because uh, we do live in a world where the gold are... Still, you know, they're not, they're defeated basically, but there are still plenty of symbionts running around. <clears throat> Episode thirty-one is called the Warrior, and it's going to be uh, a little unexpected. I've, I'm going to bring in a canon character that um, doesn't get a lot of screenplay, and he's going to make a big, ugly move. And it's going to be great, and he's going to kick some ass. And uh, I'm, I like to play with characters that don't get a lot of screen time because they're, they're a lot of fun, and, and that will be great. Uh, <clears throat> episode 32 is called The Shaman, and that's going to be about Blair, of course, because um, Blair's the shaman. Uh, <clears throat> <clears throat> what I will say in Sentinels of Atlantis is that um, I love the character of, of Ball, Um and I also hated the idea that he got cloned 30,000 times so that the, the, the cloning thing will not be happening. Episode 33 is called The Betrayal. This is important. Um, and it speaks back to the host, which is episode 30. So, so, if, so events that happen in episode 30 will come back to haunt them in episode 33. And if you think about the canon of... Um, uh, Stargate Atlantis, you're going to to pretty much know who the host is. Um, because that's a canon event. And and the betrayal that comes in afterwards. So, so what's going to happen as as the reader during the host, you're going to find out something that that the other characters in the <laughs> in the show won't know until episode 33, which is um, several months later. And I like to, to, to 
clue the reader in sometimes and, and say, oh, look, this is this is happening and nobody else knows about it. Check that out. Which is which is which is what I did with with Andy's guide. You know, I I introduced Andy's guide to the reader, but but not to Andy himself. And so, you know where his guide is, and and you know he's safe and he's and, and, and he's going to be fine, and, and eventually he's going to come to Earth for Andy. But Andy has no fucking clue. And so th- that, that that's what happens with the host. You're going to see. The hosting situation happen. You're going to see some planning. You're going to see some scary, scary stuff, and then you won't see the ramifications of that in episode 33 called The Betrayal. Episode 34 is called The Reunion. I, th- I think that should be pretty much self-explanatory. Um, John and Rodney, who have not had a chance to come back to Earth until this point, do, and, and, and John um, reconnects with his dad. Episode 35 is called The Gift, and... I can't tell you anything about it, because if I do, it will, like, spoil the whole season, so there will be no spoiling. Episode 36 is called The Brave, and The Brave is a, uh, <clears throat> it's leading into the season finale of season two. And, and what happens is, is that John gets a lesson on the true bravery of his guide. And it is, it's huge. And so once that happens, it, this this moment is big. And so when it ripples out through the rest of the season, it, it's it's good and bad. So you don't want to leave it at that. Episode thirty-seven is about the. Te- it's called the Temple, and it will be um, a fic about the Temple of the Sentinels and on the various different planets that they exist and why they exist and how they got there and, and what they're doing. And it's going to be uh, terrible <laughs> because the temples serve a purpose beyond what they believe. And, and there's a reason why, why there are three, because there's power in the, in the number three. And the temple in the Milky Way is going to do for the galaxy – what the outpost on Earth did for Earth. It's going to ripple out through the psionic plane like a nuclear bomb. And it's going to help prepare the Milky Way galaxy for the threat of the Ori and the threat of the race. Episode 38 is called The Message. And it will be um, a message from those on high, so to speak, to John. Episode 39 is called The Supplicant. And I can't tell you anything. I can't. It, it, it would totally ruin it. And episode 40 is called The Prior. And those of you who have watched Stargate Atlantis knows exactly what I mean by The Prior. So... Um, and the prior is is a uh, uh, the prior is the harbinger of war, and that is actually the only summary I have for that episode. It, the summary for the episode is literally literally the, the harbinger of war. <laughs> so you know, so that's so that's my storyboard for um, Sentinels of Atlantis season two, and so they're going to be twenty episodes, and. Um, I'm well. I'm not going. I'm not going to do the Ori storyline the way 
the riders of SG-1 did it. So don't worry about that. that that's not going to happen. Um, will Adria be there? Yes. Will she be Vala's kid? No, she will not. Um, because I don't think she actually was Vala's kid to begin with. I think she was a unascended Ori who used her uterus as a gateway back into the into the world. Anyway. Chris King just figured out that the chat room censors cuss words. <laughs> it does. It's not my fault. I tried cutting it off. It won't let me cut it off. Isn't that crazy? Who thinks I would censor anything? I don't censor. I say all the cuss words. All of them. My favorite cuss words, motherfucker. Just for FYI. I hope anybody who's listening to me um, has their headphones on. Because if you've got kids or people in the house who don't appreciate bad language or sex, now's a portion of the story where I'll be cussing a lot and talking about dick. So, here we go. My favorite part of Sentinels of Atlantis is the sex. I love the sex in Sentinels of Atlantis. In fact, the, Sentinels, the, the sex in Sentinels of Atlantis is almost as fun for me as, as the sex in Ties That Bind, which is just kinky, awesome, dirty sex. Um, but I, I love the emotional content and the intimacy that happens in the, in, in the sex in, uh, in, in Sentinels of Atlantis. <coughs> okay, I've got some questions on my um, live journal, so I'm going to answer those. And um, I don't even know where I am on the time mark. I don't have mine. Oh, okay. We're good. Okay. I don't know how I managed to. Give me a second here. I have too many. I have, um, I recently moved from, um, two, from two monitors to three. So I have a command center. And when you have three monitors, it, it, it gets kind of ridiculous. Anyways. <clears throat> But it's also very good for organization and, and moving through projects really well. So if, if you can set that up, it's really it's really cool. But <coughs> yeah, I have three monitors. I have a lot of stuff to do. And besides that, I have my old computer, um, and um, they're and yes, they're like thirty inches each. Shut up. I have stuff. I have stuff. I I have a command center. Did you ever watch Die Hard? What was it four? Live free and die hard. Yeah, I have a command center. <clears throat> Anyways. Oh, well, I could hook up my laptop and I would have four. Oh, anyway, okay. Shut up. Okay. So, will there be any more off-world adventures? Of course, the really awesome part of them being in Pegasus is they'll be exploring stuff and finding stuff and, and looking for ZPMs and trying. Because now that I've built the world, there'll be a little bit of room for them to move around and and to do stuff. <coughs> Starlight asked me why I italicized the word mundane. I I did it uh originally to make the word stand out so that you would know that it was a A state, a, a state of being, that normal, average. 
it's it's ugly. Yeah, it's a, it's absolutely ugly. <laughs> and it's you know it's it's because when you create a situation where um, people are separated terms, there becomes a uh, a hierarchy, good or bad. And so that's where that comes from. And um, and for me, attacks isn't normal isn't normally used for sneering. It's used for emphasis. I always use italicized words for emphasis, or if it's like a ship name or something like that, or a newspaper or a book title, you know. But when um, when I use italics, uh, it's for emphasis, not for sneering or irritation or anger or anything like that. So anyway, is the Janai threat gone? Um, no. Because between them, John and Elizabeth have made an enemy of Janai that they're not entirely aware of. Um, they've done, um, yeah. That's going to come back to them in um, in, a, in a little interesting way. Of course, uh, the big main guys are, are, are dead, and so we have um, Layden from, from Canon. He's still alive, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, will Andy meet his guide in season two, in the beginning of season two? In the beginning, no. It will be kind of midway. It's called The Fall. And I'll be adding these titles to the series page for Sentinels of Atlantis probably tomorrow. Um, but, it, but it will happen in season two. How did you come up with the rating system? The rating system is actually from a throwaway line in The, the Awakening where Jim was explaining the power of guides to, uh, to Simon, and he talks about and he was giving Simon a frame of reference, like if one is this and six is this, then you know Blair's a seven, or you know just he he was giving Simon a frame of reference. And then when I was coming into Sentinels of Atlantis, which is not, by the way, connected to the Awakening in any way, they are separate universes. I came upon a rating system, and I thought, you know, how many levels would there be? And I just I I picked an arbitrary number. And why I picked one through six is is a mystery. Uh, there is no rhyme or reason to it. There was no cause or effect, or, or there, there was just literally no reason why I picked one through six. I just did, and, and that's what it was. So, just you know, a thing. Um, Will there be more details on the blue light that, that surrounded Earth? That blue light that surrounded Earth, actually, uh, the, the psionic plane, it was the psionic plane becoming visual or entering the visual spectrum. It, it's always there. It's always been there. The entire universe is kind of immersed in it. And the, the, the little city of Lamera, um, just opened it up so that you could see it, but it's always been there. And when it opened up, it created a <clears throat> a conduit that allowed um, the awakening of the sentinels and guides on Earth that were latent. The collapsed outpost on 
that Andy and Sean and David and Carson were in is actual. It was actually a uh, activating outpost, and that's the reason Lamera took off. When that outpost came into contact with Andy and David, and Andy was unbonded, it went oh. And, and it activated, and when it activated, it turned the Lamera up a notch. And so it launched, and this was, the idea came from um, the first episode of, of uh, the original SGA series where when the city almost flooded, there was a fail-safe. And the city automatically rose in response to that fail-safe. So what happened was, is when Andy came into that facility as an unbonded sentinel at a very young age in a very vulnerable position, there was a reaction by the outpost. And the outpost sent a response to Lamera. And Lamera launched, and because of its power problems, it couldn't do originally what it was supposed to do. So it launched and it sat there. And then when the power was restored by Carter, it immediately started to do a scan. And one of the first people that it hit was Chase Harris, another unbonded sentinel. And so it went <laughs> and it activated all of its safety protocols and drenched or activated the, 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 the sonic plane that's around Earth and woke up all the sentinels and guides on Earth. It's a response. It's a war response because the ancients left in fail-safes to create, a, again, an army for the race. There are a couple of things that would have activated those two outposts, an unbonded sentinel, an unbonded guide, or a wraith. Had a wraith entered either one of those outposts, the outcome would have absolutely been the same. <clears throat> so there. But as so as the as for the one through six, um, I appreciate all your ideas about how that would have um, come to be. But it literally was not that complicated. It was just me picking a number. I sometimes that just happens. It just happens. There's no rhyme or reason to some things that get decided in, in, in plotting. Um, <clears throat> as far as like the one through six goes, it's about um, the sentinel being able to use all of their sentinels and the, their, their senses and the sensitivity to it. And the more sensitive they are to their environment, the higher their rating is, which is, which is both good and bad. <clears throat> Are we going to get more information about Marcus and his guide? Marcus and Bastian um, are plot pivotal, and sometimes you create a character that that that's plot pivotal, um, plot pivotal, and you do it on purpose, and you create, a, but and and sometimes you do it by accident. I'm going to confess that Marcus and Bastian were a total fucking accident. I. I had this idea that I would create 
this pair of ascended um, sentinel and guide, and they would be like a bridge between um, the uh, Atlantis and Earth and the ascended um, Satetans. And I was like, okay, yeah. And so I gave them this awesome backstory of, of, of being, you know, Roman soldiers and, and, and dying together in battle and, 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 and ascending um, and it was just beautiful and romantic, and then um, I kept, and Bastian kept popping up, and he says he wasn't supposed to pop up too, and and suddenly in in my plot he was like pivotal. So so now they're kind of entrenched into the story, and um, yes, so that. There will be more about them. They will appear, and you will see them um, in the ascended plane, and you will see them on Earth um, being Slytherins, <laughs> manipulating shit, <laughs> having fun, and, and, and being themselves, and probably having sex, because why the hell not? Why the hell not? Okay. Um, I, I've never actually written ascended sex. There could be tentacles. It'll be awesome. So, okay, <clears throat> have you considered doing a rewrite of historical events for some of your AU stories? We know you have details in your head, in some cases written down, but you thought about breaking it out for the readers. Um, uh, no. <laughs> Sometimes I do stuff for myself that, that really isn't fit for public consumption, and um, I'll read through it, and it'll make perfect sense to me, but if I show it to you, if I showed it to you, you'd be like, what the fuck, Kira? What, what is this? What is this? And I would get like 3,000 billion questions about it. So no. No. Um, if, uh, no. I, I, I very much doubt that. <laughs> Are there any other fandoms where you haven't written a Sentinels, Sentinels AU yet that you want to, other than HP? I'm pretty sure you could write a, sam a sandwich in HP and, and we'd all read it and enjoy it. <laughs> Okay, um, I oh, I have that uh, Sherlock one with Lady Holder. Um, I have my Star Trek one where um, Kirk is a Sentinel and Spock is a Guide, which is very interesting and fascinating to me to make a to, to make a half Vulcan a Guide. I'm I'm terribly excited about it. And if you are in um, the chat room, Lady Holder has given you a excerpt from Beautiful and Dangerous Things, which is our AU of Sherlock BBC, where Sherlock is a is a sentinel who has absolutely no fucking interest whatsoever in ever having a guide, and and John is his guide. <laughs> and so, and you know, you have Mycroft in their business, and 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 everybody in their business, and Sherlock telling everybody to fuck off, and people, and then, then there, you know, just because, and, and then just for shits and giggles, there's a serial killer, because why the hell not? So, but I, 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 I enjoy exploring the, um, the dynamics between characters, especially when I can do um, characters where uh, they're kind of meant to be together. I love the idea of, of, of meant to be, of of soul bonding, of of soulmates, and um, the idea that that you're born and there is another person on this earth who was born just for you, and that 
meeting that person um, is 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 finding your um, your best destiny. It's it's just something that I I really enjoy to do. I enjoy doing. Um, there are no new excerpts from from either one of my um, Sentinel stories. That 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 that's all old stuff. If you're in the chat room, Lady Holder has also posted up a excerpt from uh, Instinct, which which is my Sentinel and Guide uh, Star Trek one. I would really I don't know if I could write a Sentinel Guide in uh, in, in Harry Potter because. <laughs> Here's the thing, when you mix in the details, when you make a crossover and <laughs> you have all of this world building you have to do for that crossover, Harry Potter is already huge. It's like this ginormous world in my head, and my head canon for Harry Potter is outrageous. And of course, I'm going to tell you right now, if I wrote a Harry Potter Sentinel guide, Draco would be the Sentinel, and Harry Potter would be the guide. Um, so, and can you fucking imagine that? That would be awesome. Now I want to write it. Fuck you. I can't believe you did that to me. Um, anyway, <clears throat> the idea of adding magic to the whole Sentinel issue is... Um, Mind-boggling. It, it will be very difficult to to mix together for me. And I, because you have to when when you do a crossover, you have to mine the canon from both shows and, and and put them together. And while the Sentinel is the little black dress of fandom, when you have a big world like Harry Potter, to add the idea of Sentinels and guides and spirit animals. Actually, you know, spirit animals. That was. Um, that could be the that could be the manifestation of their 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 and that. Hello, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to say that word. Um, their their animal form they shift into. You know what I mean. Um, the, the the spirit guy could actually be their their form. A n i m a g u s. Ever how you fucking say that? Because it's not coming out of my mouth tonight. Um, So, really, Marcus, is is that how you say it? Because I've never actually watched the movies. Um, Marcus is saying Animagus. Huh. I've I've never actually watched the movies, so I have no idea how to say that. Animagus. Um, Sometimes I hear, like, when I'm I'm watching YouTube videos, just, just, Magus, Animagus. And I, see, I'm not going to say that one. Okay, either way, you know what I mean. That could be the manifestation of their spirit guide. But then you could also do a really interesting one where you, um, if you mixed um, Sentinels and Guides and his dark materials, that would be really interesting. That their um, that their demon is actually their spirit guide. So. <clears throat> Anyways, let's see how Lady Holder pronounces it. Hold on. Lady, Lady Holder, you're on the air. Animages. Animages. Is that, is that, 
Okay. Um, but, yeah, that, that would be really cool. Have I ever considered doing a dark material crossover with any of my fandoms? Um, I thought we got warned off that by Cinna. <laughs> Cinna Minion says that having all those original characters is a pain in the ass. And maybe it would be, but I'm very tempted by it. <laughs> what will be really cool, though, yeah. is to mix it in such a way that only sentinels and gods had demons. Oh, that would be a hell of a forewarner. And then when you manifest <sighs> your demon as a child, they're like, oh, shit. <laughs> yes. Oh, just shit. imagine being a parent. And, like, say that it doesn't happen at birth. Just imagine being a parent and you're walking into your two-year-old's room and there's a big lion looking the bed with him. Well, that would be a full-grown wolf. Life. <laughs> Because all those sentinels have predators as as, as um, mm-hmm. spirit animals. So just imagine that. It would be like, what? <laughs> like, yes, shit, but you also have all those, yeah, you have all those guides who have, um, you know, the, the, the whole, uh, you know, um, predators as their, their, their spirit animals. Because remember, wolves are not exactly... Sweetness and light and everything nice. Chris says the chat is logging behind. Um, yes, there is like a 20 or 30 second delay mm-hmm. between the chat room and the broadcast. Um, and there's no controlling that. The, the broadcast has a, um, has a built-in delay in it. So you just have to suck it up. I can't even do anything about that. Um, let's see, I think I had some more questions here. Hold on. Sure. No, I don't know. I got all her. <laughs> anyway, that that lag is, is is built in, and um, there's no controlling that. Mm-hmm. Uh, <sighs> sorry, <clears throat> I um. I was talking about the sex and and the meant to be and the, and, the, and the idea of soulmates, and it's just, I'm I'm just really uh, fascinated by the intimacy that that would create in in knowing that you're with somebody that you were meant to be with, that you're connected to them on a fundamental way that that goes beyond mm-hmm. um, emotion and sexual attraction, and it's just, it's it's really interesting premise to play with. Would I, have Sentinels and Guys been active a lot throughout history? Um, in Sentinels and, in the Sentinels of Atlantis, what you learn is that the, the Sentinels and Guides um, came from Pegasus. And so when they returned to Earth, or when they came back to to Earth, when their ancients um, retreated from Pegasus, they brought sentinels and guides with them. So from that point forward, in Earth's history, sentinels and guides have existed, whether it be in secret or not. They've been there. So, the yes and that, no. That... I mean, they... They weren't there for the beginning of human history, but they have been there since the ancients um, stuck their finger in Earth's business, um, business and sort of fucking shit up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, 
one thing that that uh, is there is is let's see the ancients came back to Peg- or from Pegasus roughly ten thousand years before present day. That's right. About all the canon that you actually pay attention to most days. Um, well, yeah, because it's not canon. <laughs> yeah, I know. The numbers are about all they I even bother <clears throat> to attach to anymore. Um, but the the thing is, is there's a lot of history that's happened in ten thousand years, and so it's um, if you think about it, yeah, they probably they have been in secret at one point or another. Okay, with, well, with I think the, they have to be because if they weren't, mm-hmm. the uh, one thing I talked about in the awakening was how. Daryl was the first guide to wake up in Simon's family mm-hmm. in their known history. Mm-hmm. And Jim talked about how the conditions of slavery would have mm-hmm. um, forced sentinels and guides to go uh, latent or even dormant because it was so bad. And so if you look at our human history and, and you look honestly at, at how humans treat people who are different, who are special, who have talents or gifts they don't understand, you or who are conquered. You, you, you have to accept that the abuses that they would have suffered would have been extreme. So, yes, of course they hid. They, they, they hid as much as they could. They manipulated as much as they could. They moved through history in a way that kept them alive mm-hmm. and that kept their about viable. Mm-hmm. And the training and, and the knowledge that, you know, that they have. You think about, um, for a good portion of us, uh, we're at least somewhat familiar with, you know, uh, Western history and consider all the wars that have happened across um, Europe and, and, you know, uh, parts of, you know, parts of Northern Africa and the like that, that we all know about and the conquered peoples who you either knuckle under and, you know, do your best to blend, or you you stand up and you get your head chopped off, and that's just not real conductive to survival. No, halftime just brought up something, and science wouldn't have been around to ID them like them surmising that the Vikings were Sentinels. One thing I did, in, and I'm not sure if this is on Evil Author Day or not, but I have a Sentinel um, SGAAU, and I played with several before I picked out the one I was going to actually really work on, where John says to somebody who's pissed him off um, that historical theorists believe that Viking berserkers were feral sentinels and that they went into bloodlust. Is that the criminal minds one? No. Is that the No? No. That's that's John because that – there's a saying where John and Rodney have been separated and John sends Rodney back to Earth and they haven't bonded completely but they have some things to do and – and, and and this is not in SOA, this this particular scene. Um, and uh, this general has separated Rodney from him. And I, I might have reused the line in Sentinels of Atlantis, but it originally came from this other story. And uh, the general is refusing Actually, to give I... him information about where Rodney is. And John tells him, what you need to keep in mind is that guides keep Sentinels from going feral. And there are no gods in this room. <laughs> and yeah, then he tells the him that is... the prevalent theory is that Viking berserkers were feral sentinels, and um, 
gone crazy on bloodlust, and then he threatens to cut him. <laughs> and that guy tells him everything he yes. has to know. <laughs> yes. um, that's one I don't think you put up as an evil author day. I don't think it is either. I think you just I don't, I don't think of it. Yeah, I see, think see, that's, that's the problem when you have a whole bunch of crap on your... Have yeah, you that was it? on my hard drive. Okay, so it's like, <laughs> you've seen it. Anyway, so yeah, I've seen that it. might have ended up in... It's a bit later, later, but it originally was in this other story that I, that I was writing. And what happens in that other story is that John comes online, and Rodney's in Pegasus, and they and they get matched through DNA. Mm-hmm. And the center is furious that McKay is off world, and they're like, "What the fuck you mean? We we gave you a guide and you sent him to where?" <laughs> and so they actually yep. have to basically shut down several states to get power to give the SGA enough, um, the uh, SGC enough power to dial Pegasus to talk to Rodney because they have a semi-feral sentinel on that wants his fucking guide. <laughs> Uh-huh. And they're precariously the close thing- to Bond's interference at this point because they had been matched at a perfect level. So John, so, so like, they call in, and, and John and Rodney's like, you got me a what? <laughs> I'm sitting on three. He's super excited. And, um, actually, then they- no, actually, that one's not it. That one, you're combining two. I hate to do this Am to I you. combining two? I'm so sorry. You're combining no, I'm not. two. Yes, you are. Because the one where where he browns out. Oh God, I am. I totally am. Oh, see, that's that's the problem when you have a whole bunch of this shit. You see it, and yeah, okay, there are two. That's the one. And uh huh. But the one where John and Rodney get separated. um, Stargate Command upgrade. High level Sentinel that had an ancient gene, and the center Uh sends them John. And John goes to Pegasus and meets Rodney and says, "Oh, I'm gonna come on top of that." And then that yeah, so there yeah. are two different stories there, and, and <clears throat> that's what happens yeah, when you have a whole bunch of different works in progress. Yeah, and Elizabeth works is a bit in of progress. A bitch. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I I I know where where it is on my stuff. I'm sorry, guys, if we're being cock teases. I'm we're really trying. I'm not trying to, you know. Um, I, I actually went, I, while she was talking, I was going through Evil Author Day to find it for you so that way I could post the link. Sorry. <laughs> Oops. My bad. But, uh, <coughs> I but what I happened couple, was, is I... Points. I... I just wanted to say, Senna said that for the demons thing, she thinks that for the race, the errata slugs would be their demons. Oh, my God, that's so creepy. <laughs> I know, that's isn't fantastic. it? Yes, and that for the, the, the Harry Potter thing, the spirit guides would also be their Patronus as well as their Animagus forms. Yes, I, I believe that too, yeah. Um, yes. But uh, what happens when you create, yeah, um, when, when you have <laughs> the idea to, uh, to blend two to, to fandoms together, that Sometimes when you're like myself, you have a whole bunch of them. You have a whole bunch of ideas. And, 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 and so you write them all down, and then you figure out which one that compels you the most. And Sentinels of Atlantis won that particular um, lotto, so to speak, which is why you get uh, why you guys got this, the Sentinels of Atlantis. And, but I do have like four or five different versions of John and Rodney being um, Sentinel and Guide together uh-huh. and, and what happens as they come together and, and meet. Um, and so, yeah, 
Um, and, and like I said earlier, sometimes when you're writing a whole bunch of um, different AUs in the same fandom, and they're as big as the ones that I write, the details do tend to blend together. And the only reason and references I know about get made it is, to, yeah. The only reason I know about it is I actually recently reread all of them that I had, and I'm sorry that you know you guys aren't going to get to read them, but I'm really hoping that with things getting tidied up, she you know you'll have a shot to actually write some of that, um, because the thing that that got me with both of those is. Um, the Atlantis that they walk into is struggling. And, you know, having John there is making a hell of a difference. Now, admittedly, the reactions from Elizabeth are different in both, but it's still, um, it's still something I'd like to see. In the one where John um, is picked by the center to go to Pegasus after the fact, after the Atlantis expedition has been established, and John ends up on the city, and, and Rodney's there being all Rodney, um, and he's like, yeah, yeah. I'm going to put a leg over that. you know. And, uh, but uh-huh. what was really interesting about that one that I came up with was that their spirit guides were actually <clears throat> genetic tattoos on their back, that, that, yes, that, that there was a that representation was, yeah. of their of their spirit guide on their back, and John's spirit guide was a phoenix. So he had mm-hmm. a huge tattoo of a phoenix on his back. And they don't know what Rodney's is until Rodney and John are working out together and Rodney pulls off his shirt, and they find out that Rodney's spirit guide's a dragon. Uh-huh. And they comment that, you know, that's just not, you know, obvious that's or anything. Just- <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that, that idea of the tattoos was there, and um, I don't know why I never used it in Sentinels of Atlantis, because it's really cool. It's a really cool idea. Yeah. But it could be, I could, I could work it in where it, because, that they don't have the tattoos, because they're, but see, that Ronan and Taylor, what Ronan and Taylor were, um, just because they, they're, you know, a little bit more connected to the psionic plane does not mean that they have the training to actively use it, okay? They just know that they, they have a little bit more. Well, see, the thing is, is that so, Ronan yeah. grew up in, this, uh, in the Sentinel God culture. So if the tattoos existed, there would, there would be people on his planet who had them. Well, this, this is also the culture so that coddled all their female Sentinels. Well, they also coddled all their female Sentinels, you know? Yeah. So, Yeah. You know, there, it, it, cultures change. Things get forgotten. The ability to, you know, do the merge or whatever that, that means. Yes, because, that yes, not, because Ronan didn't know that the ancients were fucking with his people. So, yeah, I could probably, right. I could probably yeah. move it in there, probably maybe in season three, mm-hmm. where there could be, or even in the episode with the shaman, the, the, the shaman episode, mm-hmm. Blair could get the first one. Oh, see, that's awesome. Yeah, and it has, see, that, see, that's the beauty yeah. of... of um, Talking about an idea with with another person and um, and bouncing it because you get moments of of awesome, all the moments of what the fuck. <laughs> I know I've done that to you a lot. We should be like, no, no, you can't do that. Yes, I can't. No. 
Yeah, the last one of the one of the first no's that I laid down and I said no, 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 no was you wanted to make Atlantis ten thousand three hundred and sixty four oh, years old and I god. went oh, oh god, do you have to bring it up every time? This is the tea lady of Atlantean legacy. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So when I in, in my first draft of Atlantean legacy, I neglected to realize that um, Atlantis was um, millions of years old <laughs> instead of like thousands of years old. So yeah, that that yeah, was so a mistake I, on my part. And yeah, I went out and found the the, the first episode. <laughs> and made Damn me it. watch it. And yeah, I watched. And you made me watch two it. minutes. It was the it was the pro, the prologue of the damn thing. But so, what's interesting? Know. What's interesting is that I was reading um, what might have been, and Sebastian makes a comment about Atlantis's age, and you didn't correct me because it's it 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 went straight when, through beta and everything. Oh no. Oh, okay. Oh well, yeah. Maybe I I don't know. Who knows? Maybe I tried to <laughs> say it out. During um, um Sebastian's interview with Iris March, he makes a comment about. Atlantis being over 10,000 years old, which is true, she is, but she's actually over several million years old, um, and that how that nothing that humans had built had lasted that long, and, and, and it was a testament to their, to their species. And, of course, he doesn't know. They don't know what... Um, mm-hmm. Sebastian they has no idea what either. Atlantis is, and, and John doesn't know either, because they, they never had enough power. And while they're assumed there's not an, an AI... John has not met Allie in, in what might have been. If John had met Allie in what might have been, he would have never left Atlantis behind. Mm-hmm. Because Allie wasn't a person. She was an AI to him. Atlantis is an AI to John in, in, in what might have been. And so he has no idea. Um, he doesn't see her as a person, just as an artificial intelligent computer program. So when they finally meet Allie, it's going to be like he abandoned his child in Pegasus. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a very difficult moment for John because Allie's representation um, in, in what might have been is a young teenage girl. Of course, she's millions of years old, but she's still a girl. And he left her. And he's going to feel so much guilt about that one. But he doesn't know. So none of them know what she is at this point. Mm-hmm. They make assumptions about her, but they didn't but they never had enough power to wake her up completely. So they don't know about Theseus either in in what might have been. So it's going to be a very hard moment. Um the thing is <laughs> so I just said she's not going to open the pod bay doors for a while. Actually, I um while uh John explained to um, Atlantis what was going to happen, that, that, that they had no choice, that they, that they had to leave and, and that they were going to make her sleep again, and that he would come back for her, and he promised that. And then there's a scene in um, what might have been where John talks about Sebastian, and Sebastian wants to go, and he tells him that you can't, mm-hmm. because if I fail, then she's, I need yeah, you to be the one to, he's her, to go get her. He's her hope. To, yeah. to save Atlantis when I, if I fail. So... John is kind of attached to her, but he has no idea what what he really left behind. None. And what's worse, and, and Marla yeah. just commented on this in the chat room, is that the ancients knew absolutely what they were leaving behind in both Lantean Legacy mm-hmm. and in what might have been. They knew they were leaving a sentient creature on the bottom of that ocean, and they didn't care. Creatures. Creatures. Remember, there's two there. And they didn't care either. Well, Theseus is because organic. There's, 
And Allie is artificial. Yeah, but still, it's you. I I wouldn't call her a creature. But Theseus is. He's a. She's a. Probably was. uh, To the ancients, Allie's was was a computer program. They never assigned um, the importance that she deserved. Mm Hmm. Yes, they were punishing Allie and Theseus for not backing up. Um, backing them up on the um, uh, destruction of all life in Pegasus, which was what they their last ditch effort for getting rid of the race, which is why <clears throat> in this AU that is the exact reason why the uh, replicators will act the way they do when they're woken up in Pegasus. Because in canon, the Pegasus um, in, in canon the Pegasus uh, replicators when they woke up and Rodney told them to kill the race. Their response was to get rid of the rice food supply. And the ancients are no different in my AU. Um, the ancients are assholes. It's, that's just basically <laughs> it. Chris, just said the know, same thing. The ancients are fucking assholes. <laughs> yeah. But yes, let's and just, the thing is, is um, I'm going to tell you, this is probably author bias on my part. I have a real problem with the ancients. You know, there's. I think most of us do after a while. It's the same problem that most of us, we, we, we read and accepted, you know, certain biases in the Harry Potter fandom. And then as you think about it, as you grow up, or frankly, you move away from the, the story for a while, and you think back on it, and you're re- realizing what you accepted in the reader's trance, or frankly, in the, the, you know, watcher's trance of the pretty moving across the stage, um, you know, it's once you get out of it that you look at it and you go, you know, there's something really fucked up about those people. And, you know, to have a group of people who, you know, they, they built nanites to cause nightmares and eventually nanites should cause floating tumors. Oh, yes, that was another joyous one. Um, you know, Wait, you who thought that was a good the, idea? No, really. No, think about this. You have think about ancients in a meeting, and they were like, "Hey, mm-hmm. let's make some nano. Let let's make a machine that makes exploding tumors." Actually, or what can we do with nanites? Well, we can do psychological warfare and cause them to. to I'm not sure. I you think know, that the their own brain tumor cells. was actually radiation, but. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, it was right. It was, I thought it was a good it, yeah. idea to you know, put an energy-sucking creature in a closet and leave it there. That's oh, right. Oh, yeah, that was a fun one. Deronda. You can't miss, you know, having what amounts to a smoking gun with the safety off pointed at the whole fucking galaxy. Okay? I'm sorry. Because that's not a bad idea. No, all it would have taken was one. Let's just leave a weapon prime that could destroy an entire solar Ah. system and walk away. That'll be great. And And the only reason it only just destroyed the solar system is because it had a fizzle. It fizzled. (laughs) This, I mean, when when a when a uh, uh, hand grenade fizzles, it might pop the, the case. Okay, when a nuclear weapon fizzles, it does other things. Deronda took out a solar system in a fizzle. If it had worked, there wouldn't be Pegasus. Okay? And that's depressing. And the, the fact, you know, if you say this to the powers that be of, this, of, of Stargate, they'll look at you completely blank because they don't get it. You know? 
It's it, it's just fuckers. Yeah, and then Rodney catches shit for for destroying five six of the solar system. You're right, uh, OT. It's 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 ridiculous because you know he he managed to keep it to only five six of a solar system and not one arm of a galaxy. Yeah. But what was interesting about that and was was, was terribly bad writing. Um, science is a mixture of failure and success, more failure than success. And Elizabeth mm-hmm. abused Rodney for a failure that was so mm-hmm. unprofessional. It was, like, infuriating. It was bad writing. Yeah. But there's actually a lot of bad writing in Stargate that you, can't, that you really can't overlook. Um, the... Uh, there are some military aspects that drive me fucking insane. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's yeah. John and Carson in season five. <clears throat> Carson the clone. Because <laughs> they realize they fucked up mm-hmm. with that exploding tumor and pissed fans off. Oops. Okay. Oh, my so God. So here are Carson and John on another planet meeting up and tell these teams. And John is surprised by the makeup of Ann Teldy's team. Is he oh, or yeah, is he not coming. the goddamn leader of the military on Stargate, on Atlantis? How the fuck could he send a team through the Stargate and not know who they were? Yeah. The, the, the powers that be made him a figurehead. The person who's actually running the, the military arm of the expedition is Lorne. And to be honest, a lot of us use it because we all... Um, enjoy the fact that, that John has no respect for paperwork. Neither does, does Jack O'Neill. But the fact of the matter is... There's a lack of respect right, for people. Yeah. Um, there was a comment uh, from Sorka uh, that she says, um, think about it, most ancients don't think of humans as equals or even as relevant. Uh, with that line of thinking, they simply try to take advantage of an obvious and abundant source to turn into weapons. She has a point. Um, the Helia and her, you know, flipping Atlantis and Mickey and taking over and kicking the the, um, the expedition off. Are you going to do that? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's one thing I, I really have to wonder. You know, um, are they going to show up? And um, if so, are the other are they going to deal with yes. guys who are going to tell them to fuck themselves? They're going to show up. Um, in season two, that's actually one of the episodes I did not um, expand on. Um, it's, uh, it's called The Brave. They're going to mm-hmm. show up in The Brave. And that's when um, that's John gets a lesson. And that's when John gets a lesson about his guy. Well, I said earlier that John gets a lesson about Rodney's um, the bravery um, mm-hmm. within his guide. And the thing is, is it isn't that John thinks that Rodney's a coward, not being such of the imagination, because he knows Rodney in ways that nobody else does. But mm-hmm. he still Rodney sees, is, he still sees the. No, it's 
it, it, <clears throat> John has a mindset where it's his job to protect Rodney. It is, it is, that, that is his job. Everything he does on Atlantis, every moment that he has, is ultimately in the protection of his guide. And even after Rodney kills that wraith with, with his brain, that mm-hmm. doesn't change for John. But in the episode called The Brave, which is episode 36 of season two, um, um, which I will be writing, I've not written yet, don't, don't ask, um, John is going to come to an understanding about his guide that he has not had yet. Uh, that Cameron has in Vala that, and all the other Sentinels in the city are kind of shifting, and they're seeing their their guide as um, a partner, not just in intimacy and in relationship, but in war. And John hasn't made that transition yet at this point in the um, in the season, and. He makes that transition in a big, in a big moment. Because, like I said earlier, that when you're building a, a world and, and, and you build uh, a series and episodes like this, that you that you that you have a series of small and big moments. And John's epiphany about Rodney in that moment, and and how far Rodney will go to protect his sentinel, his territory his people, his tribe, is it's a huge moment for John. Cause so it, it brings Rodney to his side, not as his guide or as his lover, but as his, but as his partner in war. And that's mm-hmm. huge. That, that, that's a huge moment. And you see Bastian and Marcus. And I talked earlier about how Andy, this is probably not, it wasn't in this radio show, but in a different radio show. I talked about how Andy is John's mirror. Um, mm-hmm. Mark, and the thing is, is um, that Marcus, Marcus and Bastian have that partner vibe. Mm-hmm. When you meet them, even though you meet Marcus first, and then he holds out his hand, and Bastian appears right there beside him, not behind him, but beside him. And that was an important piece of foreshadowing because if you notice in that scene, if you, if you go back and look at it, every sentinel but Marcus has kind of shifted in front of their guide to protect mm-hmm. them. But Marcus is standing with his guide shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. That was the Fan answer that I wanted also. to give you, and I'm, and I'm not sure if I did, but, 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 but that was what I meant to give you in that scene. I will definitely so, be rereading it to see it. And if it's not there, it should be, and I'll be fixing it, because it, cause that's, that's what I wanted, but I, and I, but I didn't want to make it too obvious. I, I wanted it to be um, subtle, just a subtle little yeah. thing. So I, so I couldn't actually call uh, attention to it, because if I had, then it, the thing is, and this is terrible, but this is just me as a writer, when I do something like that, it's very subtle, and someone gets it, it's terribly exciting. So I don't like to point it out like my reader is retarded. Or that's, that's terrible. I shouldn't use that word. I've been told I shouldn't use that word because it's terrible. Um, that my reader is not a, um, um, capable of getting it without me putting a big neon sign on it, you know. So I want my reader to say, oh, and like and, they see that and absorb it. And even if they don't mm-hmm. actually consciously recognize it, and when it comes back again and they see it again and, 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 and it becomes a theme throughout the whole story that they've got this um, – 
thing to hang on to and that they've um that they've developed this mm-hmm. canon with me in a way where I didn't have to handhold or, or or feed them the story. Because mm-hmm. I don't want to feed you a story. I want to tell you a story, and I want it to be rich and and vibrant in your mind, so that when you when you read my work, you can see it in your head. Mm-hmm. That's what that's I a want. Nice movie that's what I that that's what I want to accomplish, and I'm not always sure I do. But I make every effort to. And so you do. when yeah. you're introduced to Marcus and Bastian, they're, they're side by side. And Marcus isn't trying to shield his guy from anybody there because he's not worried. His guy's a badass. And so he, he, he yeah. sees Bastian as his, as his partner in war. So, and that's a transition that all the Sentinels are going to be making in Season 2. And John makes his in the brave. Okay, I, oh. I need to read a comment that that um, Marley Slash, who's also fan art, uh, she's got a very legit point. Rodney's a scientist, okay, and when the powers that be put a gun in his hand and put him on a team and sent him out, they they expected him to immediately be like somebody who'd been through basic. You know, she's, is what she's basically writing, somebody who's trained, and he's not, okay? No. And so for Canon Robbie, there was a learning curve where he had to learn how to be a soldier. And he didn't have that backstop of bravery that um, the other civilian-turned-soldier that we know of in canon did, which was, um, you know, which was, which was Daniel, okay, who showed that right away in the movie. He had to learn it, and he did, and he did it in ways that, you know, there's um, the one episode where uh, they meet up with the super race on that far planet in the system, and he's got, Rodney is firing a 9 millimeter at a race, absolute classic textbook uh, stance, fired his full clip at him, admittedly asked, what do I do next? But managed to reload, not drop the gun, and did it, and knew he was screwed, but he did it anyhow, because it bought uh, Shepard time. Yes, that's that's it. That's the defiant one. Yeah, I watched that Mm -hmm. a couple weeks ago, because my husband was watching, um, we have all the Blu-ray, and so he was watching uh, mm-hmm. Sentinels of Atlantis, and um, he had, he was on the Defiant one. So I watched he that. Watching, and he was not watching Sentinels of Atlantis. He would never watch Sentinels of Atlantis, oh, even if yeah. he managed to get the thing. You know filmed. what I mean? <laughs> he was watching Stargate Atlantis. Anyway, because yes. well, see, that's the thing. Out of out of all of my stories that I tell, um, to me, Sentinels of Atlantis is, is 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 like a TV show in my head because of the way I structured it. Yes. Mhm. It's as close as I've ever gotten to writing a TV show, so to speak, you know, because uh-huh. it really is my retelling yeah. of, of um, Stargate Atlantis in a, in a way that I think um, is very entertaining to myself. And I do, when I read it, it's it's like I'm watching TV. And so I, so I hope that that experience that I have as a writer, coming at it as a writer, is an experience that, that my readers have it when they come to, into it, which is why... Um, I, I talk about um, you know, the 
the, the little subtle things that I do in scenes that that I hope my readers are getting. And sometimes when one of them do, when I get an email, um, and someone's mm-hmm. like, hey, I noticed this, and I'm like, yes, and I throw my hands up into the air like I score a touchdown, <laughs> you know, because, like, awesome, you got it. I, I have to tell you, mm-hmm. and that's fantastic. You know, that, that's awesome when I can um, kind of push something underneath the story that I'm not telling you out out loud and the the writer gets the reader gets it and that's pretty amazing. Mhm. Uh, <laughs> yes, um it would be it would be very odd if if Kira and I got the chance to to write the script uh fan arts because if we did that um it would actually have a lot of the plot holes filled because you can drive those fucking toilet bowls of Ori ships through some of those plot holes. Dear God in heaven. <laughs> There's there a lot more butt sex in it, that's for sure. Yes, this is true, too, you know. Um, but, yeah, it's it's just ridiculous. Um, I'm serious. There would be, like, a lot way. of butt sex. It would have to be on Showtime. Who has no problem showing mm, butt sex, apparently. <laughs> yes. By the way, Cinna says fandom has incepted you. This is with, probably with true. Of Atlantis. <laughs> My fandom um, experience has uh, been varied. And one of the reasons why mm-hmm. I tried looking for crossovers for Stargate and the Sentinel is I love the Sentinel. I thought it was an awesome concept. It was fun to play with. I really enjoyed writing The Awakening. But everybody knows about my fandom experience with The Sentinel, and if you don't, it was bad. <laughs> and because, here's the thing. There are a lot of amazing, awesome people in The Sentinel fandom, and then there are like four or five or ten, maybe twenty, superior fucking Absolute assholes. Asshole. And not the good kind. The, the dirty, crusty kind that mm-hmm. I haven't taken a bath in a year, okay? And <sighs> yuck! Oh, it was terrible. And so I had this 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 fandom experience, but I really enjoyed the Sentinel, and it pissed me <laughs> off because I knew I knew that if I wrote anything else in that fandom, I would get more shit. And I'm like, fuck all that, and fuck all you, and rocks fall, and everybody dies, and kiss my ass, and go to hell. And then I'm like, mm-hmm. well, shit, now what am I going to do? And I really, it hadn't crossed my mind at that point that crossovers existed, and I don't know how I came across the first one, and it definitely was that um, strawberry one by Darkmoor, and, um, but I did. And um, it probably showed up. Um, were you reading the McKay Shepard uh, feed at the time? Because I it probably showed up on there. Because I know that's I where I know I, where I, I saw. By the way, oh, oh my God, it was an epiphany. Yeah. Oh, I yes. can cross over the Sentinel. What? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. So I that know. was a very organic. Yeah, Cinna says she just threw up a little bit in her mouth from the uh, uh, descriptor. That you use. And Sorry, I, I Sarah. Think I agree with her. <laughs> yes. Sorry. The, the, but, but that's truly how I feel about it. That, that's truly how I feel. Yes. Um, so, the, so, yes. so, so the Sentinel fandom hurt my feelings. And that doesn't happen often because, I, you know, and I really think that's also part of the reasons why I, I am the way I am today about um, reader feedback and um, critique. And I know some people think it's terrible. 
they they think my whole policy on it is terrible and, and how dare I think that way. And um, the last time I told somebody, if you don't like it, you don't have to read it, I, I, I got called ungrateful and um, snotty and a cunt and um, uh-huh. whatever, whatever. Um, here's the thing, and I mean this across the board, even professionally. If you don't like what I write, don't fucking read it. There's a back button for a reason, so you know use it. That I mean, if you're if you're online, that that just works about all. And when um, I had my bitch fest earlier it, in the month, or yeah, it was earlier in the month. I talked about that, and um, I don't write for you mm-hmm. that that I write for me, and um, I do that across the board. <laughs> I write for money, yes, mm-hmm. but um, I also write for me, and um, I haven't so much written for anybody else in quite a while because I'm 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 tired of that shit. It's it's not a happy place to be. And if you're no. doing something that doesn't make you happy and you have a choice, don't do it. I mean, because a lot of times we do, we do things because we had no choice. You know, we have to make money to eat, to live in a house, to have a, to have the internet, to have a computer, to to mm-hmm. read fan fiction. <laughs> mm-hmm. So sometimes yeah. the money, so sometimes yeah. money is required. Internet you got to do thing. shit. You got to do shit you wouldn't normally do to have money, so you can have internet. And fandom. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> fine, you do that. But if there's something you're doing that you don't enjoy, that you don't have to do, don't fucking do it. Yeah. Just don't. Because <laughs> there's absolutely the... nothing. You know what? Somebody, mm-hmm. someone, I forget who it was, honestly. It, it, it might have been my husband. It might have been my mother. I said something. And it was derogatory towards somebody else. Um, and they were like, oh, you shouldn't say mm-hmm. that. I'm like, why? And they were like, what? I said, why shouldn't I fucking say it? Are you going to spank me? <laughs> it was probably your husband. Because, well, actually, no, I take that back. Your mother would still spank you. <laughs> and she and I was honestly, it, it might have been my husband. Because I got this look like, what? Mm-hmm. And um, I was like, well, you know what? I can say whatever the fuck I want. Mm-hmm. I can believe what I want too, and there you have consequences, mm-hmm. sure. But then you have to wonder if I'm actually going to care about your consequences. What's the consequence for me not for, for, for me saying, if you don't like it, don't read it? Oh, well, then you don't like me, and I'm a bitch, and I'm a cunt. Well, fuck you. I don't care. You know, mm-hmm. so, that's, so that's the consequence for me not liking the Sentinel fandom is they don't like me back. I don't care. And wow. You know what? It has I would have hurt, to develop an instrument. Numbers. Who cares about my numbers? I don't. I would have to invent an entire new field of math and a device and some probably some physics to measure how much I don't care about that shit. Because you know there was a moment when I read those anonymous wank things about me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a short moment because then I realized um, that they were really pitiful. Um, mm-hmm. If you spend your time online bitching about me, I think you're pitiful. Get a life. If you create accounts on anonymous live journals just to comment about me, you're a dumbass. And I don't care if you it's don't It's not like worth it. the effort. There's yeah. some consequences for you. Don't like me. Don't give a shit. 
I don't care. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in, in fandom, these people who get run out of fandom who um, get their feelings hurt, there was a moment when I was mm-hmm. almost that person. I mean, it was a small moment, but it, but it was there. Because I was like, well, I don't understand, because I didn't do anything to you. Why are you being so asshole to me? Because at that point, I wasn't being much of an asshole to anybody. I was keeping to myself. I wasn't mm-hmm. posting about my work. I wasn't posting bitchy posts on my live journal. I was being a nice person. But even being a nice person well, didn't that keep broke. people. I know, right? Being a nice person didn't <laughs> keep people from being mean to me. Mm-hmm. They were still mean to me. They still sent me terrible emails, and they still sent me um, nasty comments, and they put things on my live journal, and they mm-hmm. got on anonymous wank fandoms and, and bitched about me or bitched about oh, me yeah. in private entries on their live journal or their dream width or wh- oh, whatever. Yeah. It doesn't It doesn't matter. But they still did it when I wasn't doing anything to them and I wasn't saying anything about their, their butthurt behavior. And so... If they're going to do that regardless of what I say or how I say it and what I think, so why shouldn't I fucking say what I think? Mm-hmm. That's what it comes from, and that's what it is. If they're going to be assholes regardless of your behavior, then do whatever the hell you want. And I mean that across the board. If <clears throat> we got 90 seconds left. If someone's going to be an asshole to you no matter what you do, be an asshole back. <laughs> and I mean that. I mean that. If someone's going to abuse you, no matter how you behave, fuck them. Yeah, let them, let them eat, you know, their own behavior, you know, teeth first. They, they can, you know, they can live with it, you know, and if they can't handle it, then they should learn not to dish it. The, oh, as for Azor, yes, I did get better. It was just a moment. Oh, yes, she did. Yes, she did. <laughs> you, might, you might have noticed. <laughs> yes, because I remember that, that particular, or some of those, some of those uh, wanks and, you know, people being all bitchy and stuff, because I ran across it, and I just couldn't, I couldn't figure out what in the fuck was wrong with these people, you know, and I, we're probably almost out of time. But we are. We are. Wait, 23 seconds. I'll tell you what's wrong with them. They think everyone is going to care what they think. Who the fuck? I got news yeah. for you. Yeah. None of us give a shit what you think. We don't. Anyways, we got to go. Catch you guys later. Bye. Shut up and sit down.
500 vehicles to sell, 500 ways to save. One month only at Build Penny Toyota during Mega Memorial Month, now through May 31st. That means mega deals on your favorite Toyota models from Alabama's number one volume Toyota dealer. And don't forget, every new vehicle comes with our 10-year unlimited warranty. Plus, enjoy the rest of our awesome Penny perks. Visit BuildPennyToyota.com during Mega Memorial Month. Number one based on 2018 total new Toyota retail sales in Alabama for Southeast Toyota distributors. Warranty valid through 10th year of ownership on new vehicles only. See dealer for details. 500 vehicles to sell, 500 ways to save. One month only at Build Penny Toyota during Mega Memorial Month, now through May 31st. That means mega deals on your favorite Toyota models from Alabama's number one volume Toyota dealer. And don't forget, every new vehicle comes with our 10-year unlimited warranty. Plus, enjoy the rest of our awesome Penny perks. Visit BuildPennyToyota.com during Mega Memorial Month. Number one based on 2018 total new Toyota retail sales in Alabama for Southeast Toyota distributors. Warranty valid through 10th year of ownership on new vehicles only. See dealer for details.